0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. We'll be reading and going through verses 6 through 10. been titled The Message, The Law of the Harvest. And this message has been kind of on my heart for the last several weeks. Uh, most of you know that we travel every Sunday and every Wednesday from Fresno, and it's Highway 41 is a very good road, but we're always passing crops of some sort uh, through uh, various things, and right now the raisin grapes are on the raisin paper drying out, Uh, much of the uh, cornfields have been harvested, and even the silage in some of them has been harvested, so that's going on right now, so uh, those of us who live in the general area, uh, that's a, a kind of a theme that we're well aware of at the moment. And so I'd like to speak on this theme, the law of the harvest. Would you stand with me as we read the text? Beginning in verse 6, the scripture says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us pray again. Father, thank you for this scriptural reading. We pray that uh, you would grant us uh, the Holy Spirit who will guide us unto all truth as he illumines our hearts. I pray that the things that I've studied will be of great value not only in worship to you, but also in edification to your people, as well as a presentation of the gospel for those who are lost and needing a Savior. We pray to your God that we would accurately depict what your word says here in order that we would not only gain uh, useful and proper scriptural information, but also in the end result, Lord, that we would make proper application that our lives before Jesus Christ would be that which draws us closer to him, and that our walk would reflect his nature as well. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to freely admit to you that uh, being a city boy raised in Los Angeles area is that that which I know of agriculture, I learn from a book, or learn from talking to those who were well knowledge in agriculture and so I have tried uh, the best I can, and I hope you'll understand as I maybe not get it all right necessarily. What would you think if someone told you, if your diet consists mainly of foods high in cholesterol and fat, you will lose weight? What about drinking a quart of alcohol a day will keep you from being an alcoholic? Or, by refusing to meet new people, you're bound to make new friends. You would probably think the person making those statements was crazy, confused, ignorant, or in a sick way, joking. And you'd be right. People who eat lots of foods high in fat and cholesterol, they gain weight. Heavy drinkers become alcoholics. Social hermits become friendless. Why? Because we reap what we sow. If we want to achieve certain goals, we must do what it takes to reach those goals. And if we want to avoid certain consequences, we must refuse to do anything that would lead to those results. With rare exceptions, the principle of sowing and reaping holds true in every single thing we do. The biblical principle of reaping what one sows should not be confused with the Eastern concept of the law of karma. You say, well, why do you say that? When I was a freshman in college 50 years ago, uh, I was very heavily involved in choral music at Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa, California and not only in the a cappella choir, but in the chamber singers, a little smaller group, and became very, very good friends with a lot of the choir members. I remember one uh, evening in particular, one of the guys in uh, the, the choir, it might even been chamber singers, but we went to a local restaurant in Costa Mesa, and as we sat down to order and eventually get our food and so on, had a waitress come up to me and she looked at me kind of intently, and she says, I'm having this incredible karma about you. Well, that was before I was saved, and that was puzzling to me even then. And the more I, I thought about it, the more silly it sounded. Okay. Karma is viewed as an unbreakable universal law of cause and effect that says for every action there is a Corresponding reaction. The deeds we perform in this life will inexorably determine the condition of our life hereafter. The biblical law is not as deterministic as the supposed karmic one. According to Scripture, and that's got to be our basis of authority, our present deeds do impact our future, but unlike karma, there is room for God's grace of forgiveness and deliverance. And I'm so grateful, aren't you, about that? I mean, I can tell you in the 49 years I've been a believer is that there have been times I've looked back now and kind of blew it. But yet at the same time, if I acknowledge those sins, and they were, accepting the God's grace of forgiveness put me on a right track again. And the same holds for any of us. That is to say that though we who are born-again believers have been delivered ultimately from condemnation, during our, the course of our life experience, there comes times where our fellowship with the Lord is strained because of our sin. And as one person put it, and I think it is a very accurate statement, if you feel removed from God, guess who moved? Okay. So if that distance between us and the Lord exists, and it does sometimes, it's because we've turned to the carnal flesh instead of yielding to the Spirit. But praise the Lord, there is that great opportunity that we have understanding that the grace of God is magnificent, is that when we come to terms with the fact that we're out of fellowship with God because we've erred, when we confess our sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? Oh, there you go. Uh, Karma's not like that. Yet as often as we observe the law in action, we are frequently surprised or even angered when it crops up in our Christian walk. Uh, Brother Fritz was mentioning this morning in the Sunday school class about uh, uh, something he heard Brother Roy Reed say in a chapel, And I remember a lot of the experience that was given, and the wisdom that was given by our seminary instructors, like Brother Reed. And one in particular I remember about Brother Martin Canavan is he always said this. He says, If you're sowing your wild oats, don't pray for crop failure, it won't work. And he was so right. We can think, we think we can sin and then escape the consequences through prayer or renewed commitment to God. In one of my long-ago previous pastorates, there was a fellow in the church, and he was actually a Bible teacher, and he had children, he and his wife had children, that weren't serving the Lord, and one thing after another, and it would just cause great grief in their hearts. And finally, this brother mentioned publicly, he says, I believe that if someone sins and they get right with God, then they will not have to endure the consequences or the reaping of what they sowed. And I challenged him in private to begin with, I said, brother, that goes against the law in the scriptures of sowing and reaping. Uh, It's great that in the midst of that situation, uh, a believer who has uh, sowed sin, recognizes it, and then calls out to God for the grace of forgiveness, they will be granted forgiveness, unequivocally, every single time. And that's great. But understand that that law of sowing and reaping will not be broken. There will be the consequences of that sin. And we'll see an example of that a little later in the message. The Lord seldom grants such a request for good reason. We will never learn to hate sin and love serving God if we rarely experience sin's consequences. In his epistle to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul brings this principle to the forefront and urges us to order our lives with that in mind. He reminds us that the law is a two edged sword, it can bring reward or punishment, holiness, or corruption. Everything depends on what we choose to sow. So the principle that states you reap what you sow is best illustrated in farming. And so many of our folks in this congregation are well aware of that by their own experiences. And I'll give you this opportunity. If through the course of the message, and I draw from these examples, you say, no, I don't think you got that right. Please tell me afterwards, and I'll pursue and make correction, because I don't want to be inaccurate. And uh, like I said, I'm going to lot and want to (laughs) read. The principle, according to his best illustrated in farming, in fact, four agricultural laws revolve, around the almost universal validity of this principle. What we reap, what we plant. In the book of Job chapter 4 and verse 8, even though this counsel is given by one of Job's enemies or his supposed friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, still the counsel is good. And this is what it says, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now, the problem with uh, Eliphaz's counsel is he presumed that Job had sinned and all of those calamities happening in his life, and come to find out that wasn't the case. I had a church member many years ago. I had, unfortunately, a rear end accident uh, a number of years ago, and uh, this brother came to me and he said, What sin are you hiding? And I said, brother, if I had, if I was hiding a sin, I would be the first to tell you that I've gotten that square. But I had an accident, okay. And in fact, remember the, the Pharisees and Jew in, in Jesus' time, they looked at that paralytic by the uh, 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 water of Bethesda and said, well, who sinned? Him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. Sometimes. Uh, Difficult things happening to godly, godly people, okay? And we have to understand that, and so it's not a matter of presuming that someone has sinned if some things happen in their life that are not, uh, appear to be very positive. So, as we seek to get good counsel here, since the beginning of life on earth, like has begotten Like. Now, some of your young uh, children and young people going to school anymore, they're hearing a little different message about that. But let's examine what the Bible actually says. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And we're at chapter 1, verse 11, 12 and 21 to 28. Beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit, according to its kind, whose seed is in itself and on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, The herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Going down to verses 28, 21 rather, to 28, the Bible says it this way. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. Cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth each according to its kind and it was so and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind Cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind and God saw that it was good Then God said let us make man in our image according to our likeness Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, that God blessed them, and God said to them, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth dogs give birth to dogs birds to birds fish to fish and humans to humans why do you say that pastor here's why uh, our people for several generations now have been inundated with Darwin's evolutionary thinking at saying that we all have a common ancestor, an amoeba in the ocean, and then somehow or another through mitosis and uh, evolutionary macroevolution that uh, we all have common ancestry. That flies in the face of the counsel that God has given in Genesis chapter 1. But notice many times in the reading that I gave is that the statement after its kind was made if you want to take it to the bank young people when you're exposed to the alternative ideas that are in, in, in error go back to Genesis chapter 1 either personally or some of your friends and say you know that that's not the way God set things up as uh, he created after its kind okay the same thing holds true in farming. From watermelon seeds come what? Watermelons, okay? From orange trees, oranges. From grapevines, grapes. If you want grapes, don't plant orange trees. And if you want watermelons, you don't try to get them from grapevines, okay? That's the way God created his world to operate. And he won't change it simply because we might want him to do so. Second law of farming we reap in a different season than when we plant. Okay? We can't harvest a crop before or at the same time it's planted. You say, well, that makes sense, you know, and uh, you're almost stating the obvious. I think so, but yet that doesn't seem to fly into the thinking of so many people. Harvesting always follows a season of planting and growth. Notice, if you will, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, "...to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven." A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. So, try as we might, we can't bypass this process. Third law, we reap more than we plant. The prophecy of Hosea, chapter 8. and we'll look at uh, verse seven. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no bud, it shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Interesting thing about this statement is a peach tree doesn't produce one peach. Typically, a number of peaches. A grapevine bears bunches of grapes. One stalk of corn yields several ears. Okay? In this inherent ability in plants goes all the way back to their divine creation. And it's something to celebrate. I know um, the Bible's very quick to point out that uh, both the sower and the reaper benefit from the same crop so fourth law we can do nothing about last year's harvest but we can do something about next year's obviously we can't change the past if we need to reconcile the past and you know uh, ask the Lord's forgiveness of sin and get back on the track that we had gotten off certainly he will accommodate us in that regard but once a harvest is in it's quality and quantity are set We can, however, take steps to improve the production of our next crop. Let's say after a crop is in and uh, the soil is turned back over and so on, the farmer can put some nutrients in that soil, hopefully to make uh, a better crop the following year, or maybe have an increased species of seed. A lot of things, and and again, I'm going off book learning. (laughs) So there it is. (laughs) Although some factors will always be outside our control, we are responsible to handle wisely what is under our influence. Say for instance uh, uh, in the summertime here, which I can remember a time when we never got rain in the summer. We're starting to get that once in a while here, and that can have an adverse effect upon crop production. Another thing, too, during the uh, late fall and the winter months, there can be possibly uh, a freeze. And I know the uh, orange uh, growers and so on like that, they put their smelting pots out, hopefully to uh, resist the potential harm that frost will have on their fruit. So there's a lot of things that are beyond our control, but we can do the best we can with what we can do. Although some factors will always be outside our control, we are responsible to handle wisely what is under our influence. But let's take the symbolism of that and turn that into the Christian life. There's a command in verse 6 about in regarding giving. It says, "...let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches." Paul opens this section with an exhortation directed at the recipients of a teaching ministry. The person who sows the seed of God's word should expect to reap a livelihood. It makes no difference whether the instructor is a missionary, a pastor, an evangelist, private tutor, or a teacher. So the idea here is that congregations should recognize their responsibility to help supply their pastor's material needs. And from what I can see, this church has been very good about that. And there is some biblical principles involved. So let's go to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, in verses 11 to 14. If we have sown spiritual things for you, Paul said, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. The command can be abused by both ministers and congregations. I attended a memorial service uh, last week and uh, up in the, the Modesto area, and uh, a friend of mine who was the, the son-in-law of the fellow that went home to be with the Lord, this is what he told me uh, and there was uh, the pastor of that particular church was there. and this is what he said. He says, "My father-in-law always taught us that it is the church's responsibility uh, to make sure that a pastor is poor and that he's humble. And I said, brother, you didn't get that from the word of God. Okay. it's uh, the humility the lord provides as the spirit works in the heart of that man he should and again uh, a pastor should always have a servant spirit you know he should love his people to the point where he knows that he's one of them and that he he's willing to make sacrifices if the need arises with regard to uh, the matter of keeping him poor a pastor should not live in a uh, an extraordinary lifestyle, you know, where uh, he's living the good old life, you know, and he's making a fortune. No, he should live pretty much on the same level of his people, no more no less, uh, and his needs should be looked at the congregation so that those things are provided. And these, I think these are just reminders for you in the anticipation of the call of a pastor coming up and uh, I don't have any reason to doubt that you've never done that. I think you have risen to the occasion, and I appreciate that. Uh, on one hand, a pastor can become lazy or ineffective while still receiving his salary. That's not right. On the other hand, the congregation can use his salary to coerce him into preaching what they want to hear. Now, what I mean by that is some congregations have some people who are very well to do and uh, sometimes they will use their giving as a means of influence God help because the pastor's responsibility is two things, feed the flock of God according to the truths of God's word and secondly be an example to the flock which of course would include the tending of the sheep uh, during the course of the week and just be there for that congregation as they have need because that's what God calls pastors to do. Both situations that I spoke of are wrong and both can be avoided if ministers and their congregations diligently pursue their responsibilities according to biblical guidelines. And that's got to be whatever we have. The teacher-student relationship is a partnership of sharing. The word share that's found in verse 6 comes from a word which means to exercise fellowship and when it says that okay share that's in the imperative mood therefore it is a command and so Paul is admonishing the church there at Corinth to assume their responsibilities as well as those who are the teachers doing theirs so as uh, they need to their, to do their different parts to ensure the continuation of the ministry, and when both parties do what they should, both will share in the teaching ministry's abundant fruit. Secondly, here's a reminder of the harvest law in verse seven: Do not be deceived; God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Paul turns from giving to personal holiness with a harvest law still on his mind. We cannot fool, nor can we ridicule God. Though we may plant one kind of lifestyle and hope to harvest the produce of another, we're going to be severely disappointed in the process because God will not overturn his law. Verse 8, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. All right. We cannot expect to harvest the field of holiness if we plant in the field of carnality. Even divine forgiveness may not thwart the consequences of this law. David's sin with Bathsheba is a case in point. The Israelite king requested and received God's pardon for committing adultery and murder. Okay? In Psalm 51, we have the indication there that he admitted his sin and asked that God not remove his spirit from him with regard to his kingly authority. And apparently God honored that request. However... It must be pointed out the consequences of his sin wreaked havoc in both his private and his public life. He was still king of Israel, but from that point forward his household was a mess and his ability to reign as king was constantly tested. God didn't stop or even slow down the results of his sin. Indeed, he initiated some of them as part of David's chastisement. We notice in 2 Samuel, verses 11, or actually chapters 11 to 23, and I'll just indicate some of those things. Okay, in his own household, his daughter was violated by his son. The actual brother of the daughter wreaked vengeance by eventually killing the brother who violated her. Then there was a movement on the part of that son to overtake the throne. And so the point to be made is there was constant turmoil in David's house as a result uh, and the consequences of his sins. And so don't don't think, brothers and sisters, that if you traffic in sin, you're going to get off scot-free. You might fool people. You might even fool a pastor, or he might even fool you, but we never can fool God. And it's interesting to note that in spite of that statement and that law, if you will, is that the Holy Spirit will either bless or convict An individual about the reality, what's going on in their heart, rather than what seems to be on the surface. Verses 9 and 10, Paul gave an encouragement for the brethren in Corinth to continue. It says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sleepless nights and frustrating days can accompany caring for a crop as well as meeting people's needs. Both endeavors can seem endless and even thankless. But just as a crop will eventually produce a harvest, so acts of kindness will one day lead to a rich reward. We're told in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, and verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Likewise, The very last writing of the Apostle Paul before his subsequent uh, death is found in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in this passage of scripture he mentioned to young Pastor Timothy in verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, finally, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. One of the things that we try to instruct the seminary students from a very practical standpoint is because you have uh, accepted the call of the Lord with respect to potential pastoral office, that does not mean you're going to be free from criticism, even when you're right. And so what we try to do is prepare them by some experiences and by even the scriptures, is that there's going to come some times that are not very pleasant. But yet you still have the call. And you're still commanded to love God's people. And understand that God's on his throne. And he says very succinctly, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And man, that takes a burden off uh, people. And you may have also been the recipient of false accusations, and they hurt. They hurt deeply. But let me just say this that some have used that as a means of justifying no longer serving the Lord. I can tell you, it might seem that there's some justification in that, but there is not. Because here's the secret to it. God did not do that to you. He is always faithful. He always blesses. I remember uh, a few years back, uh, there was a a man in uh, one of the churches I was laboring with, and I mean, he got legal false accusations. And uh, he was, man, he was ready to throw in the towel and say, this isn't worth it. And I said, brother, God knows what's true. And if you're telling me and the, and you're telling the church that uh, uh, you're not guilty, we're going to pray that the truth be revealed and God exonerate you and bring to justice those who are lying and giving false testimony. And you know what? It took about a year, but that happened. He was totally exonerated and the individual who was making the accusations, it was proven they were false, but it still hurt. But here's where I'm going with this. Even though people have the potential of hurting you, making false accusations to you, just remember God didn't do that to you. He knows, he knows the real truth of the situation just like the patriarch Joseph, remember him? In the middle chapters of the book of Genesis, falsely accused and put in prison. But God knew. And God, if you will, had his back. And he eventually emerged to be second only to the Pharaoh himself as leader in the land of Egypt. And God used them and uh, I remember in particular one of the great blessings in the book of Genesis, and I get to write about that for the following quarter, um, is that when it came time to reveal himself to his brothers, and they must have been shaken in their boots to be sure, he said, "Here, this is what he said, you meant this for evil, but God turned it to good in order to save many lives. Here's the thing when we suffer things like that, false accusations or whatever it might be, is that God might have a plan in resolving it that we're not aware of. But God has a plan. And if we're in the right, God will make sure that we are exonerated and that we're actually not only delivered, but raised a little higher. Been there, done that. So in his book... Traveling Light, Reflections on the Free Life, author Eugene Peterson states this, and, uh, and a quote, Is that selfish? Short-sighted? No. Paul doesn't direct our attention to those who are close to home because they are more deserving, but because they're there. And he knows that the biggest deterrent to the drudgery of caring for an everyday friend is the dreaming of helping an exotic stranger. Giving from a distance requires less of us. Less involvement, less compassion, it is easier to write out a check for a starving child halfway around the world than to share the burden of our next door neighbor. The distant child makes a slight dent in my checkbook. The neighbor interferes with your routines and your sleep. Paul will not permit us to compensate for neglecting those nearest to us by advertising our compassion for those in another continent. Jesus, it must be remembered, restricted nine-tenths of his ministry to 12 Jewish men because it was the only way that his New Testament churches, which he was establishing, would be able to fulfill the Great Commission. He couldn't be bothered with the foreign Canaanites because his work was to seek to redeem the entire world. And so the check for the starving child must still be written and the missionary must still be sent and supported, but as an extension of what we are doing at home, not as an exemption from it. What's the point? We can can think about, uh, you know, those in distant lands... Our own missionaries, some out from our churches, or maybe even the sister churches that's struggling or, or someone. And that's all fine and well. But that should be uh, an add on, if you will, to the fact that a New Testament church is actively engaged in caring for one another. Okay? That's why Jesus said in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John By this shall all men know that you're uh, my disciples. If you have love one for another. If a church is not actively engaged in caring for her own members, how can she be expected to care for someone else thousands of miles away? Paul's not neglecting that that foreign missionary or that child overseas who needs assistance, that those aren't legitimate concerns. They are. But those should be extensions of what's already going on in the midst of a New Testament church as those members care for one another and I'm here to tell you that what I've observed since May is you care one for another by and large. You know, I'm probably not universal, probably never will be, but that's a very very necessary uh, target if you will. So what's the end result? What's the application? Share your finances. We need to relax our grip on our funds and invest them into the ministry of those who feed the soul. Our giving to the Lord's work should be the priority of our personal finances. You know, when you're, you're looking at your uh, paycheck and so on, and you say, boy, I got the pg and bill and I got this uh, bill coming up and so on, and basically your, your idea is to give the leftovers to the Lord. Listen, put the Lord first and offerings to the Lord first and I heard uh, one person put it like this God can do with 90% of your salary much better than you can do with 100% good thought second uh, idea sow in the spirit not in the flesh holiness begets holiness wickedness begets wickedness We must stop sowing wild oats during the week and praying for a crop failure on Sunday morning. If we really want to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, and that certainly should be a desire, we need to plant our lives in His field. Thirdly, don't grow weary in doing good. If we grow weary of sowing good works, we will end up like farmers who quit planting because they're impatient. We will reap only a small portion of the harvest we could otherwise have had. We need to encourage one another to keep on keeping on in the spiritual sowing process. We notice uh, a very familiar passage of Scripture in the letter to the Hebrews, and this is in chapter 10. Verses 24 and 25. The Bible says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting or encouraging one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Do good to all. And finally, the very last part of verse 10 of our text, especially those in the body of Christ, the Lord's church. And you say, you know what, Pastor? Some people are easy to serve. Others are a whole lot more difficult. Yeah? No one knows that any better than Christ. He came to sow seeds of faith in the field of sinful humanity and even through our evangelistic efforts which of course the very first slot the very first activity of the great commission is to evangelize to share the gospel and although some people readily accept him most reject and that can be real disheartening uh, to someone who's just starting out wanting to be used to the Lord to share the gospel But understand this, is people are not just simply rejecting you if you're faithful to share the gospel. They're rejecting the one who died for them. And even those at that time, uh, as Jesus was hanging there between heaven and earth on the cruel cross, many of those for whom he was dying came and mocked him. And then he said these incredible words, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. But in time, the seeds that he had planted took root. And through the teaching and preaching of his disciples and the early churches, uh, things began to sprout. The Lord has called upon his churches to work with him in the fields of sinful humanity. Sometimes we will toil and yet not see the fruit of our labor in this life. At other times, we will reap the benefits of someone else's toil. As uh, Paul himself even said, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God giving the increase. And so, however, which way we serve the Lord, and you know, God might be laying a ministry on your heart. Uh, that you're really convinced you need to do and yet you're reluctant because you're afraid that it's not going to work out very well. Listen, don't think that you're the end of it. Even uh, a preacher needs to understand that he's faithful to discharge the message of God and the word of God as he still must rely upon the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of men. I remember at an association meeting probably 40 years ago there was this one missionary that got up one year and he said he'd saved 50 souls. He came a year later and to his credit made this observation. He said last year I reported that I'd saved 50 souls and I'm here to tell you that it was me that saved them and not the Lord. The idea here is We're servants, every one of us, whether it's the pastor on down, um, and, and that we're to be faithful first to him. And we have maybe different callings and different gifts and so on, and the point to be made, it's all to be for his glory. Amen? Yeah. So, God's given each New Testament church a call that's rather unique. But Jesus told us, that all of these things that I mentioned would happen. John chapter 4. And verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Back in 1970 when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, I remember distinctly the individual who was the soul winner or talked me through the plan of salvation when I gave my heart to Christ. I haven't seen her in 49 years, but I still remember her and remember that she took the time Uh, To share that plan of salvation. And I look forward to one of these days seeing her again, hopefully before eternity, but I know I'll see her in eternity, and I'll say thank you. Thank you. So let us reach out to everyone we can, giving all we are and have to the service of our great Lord. And He is the husbandman, the farmer who cannot fail. The interesting thing about studying the Word is the simplicity and the depth of the Bible are stunning ironies. I remember when I was pastoring the Landmark Church in Freedom, uh, a lady that you probably know because I think she had her base here, um, Sister Anderson, Thelma Anderson. She was an elderly lady when I was there in the early 80s, and she had about a second grade education and a pastor always wonders if he's going a little too deep or a little over the heads of the people. That's a common concern that we have, and I certainly do. But I remember one time I was wondering at the conclusion of, the me- of a message that maybe that was a little too deep. Sister Anderson came out, tears streaming down her face, and saying, Pastor, I had a little bit of heaven today. Thank you for that message. It meant so much to me. It wasn't that I preached it, but the Holy Spirit accompanied that word and gave her understanding. And that's a wonderful thing. But here's the thing. You've got to be open for the Lord to do that in your heart and your mind. Some principles of the Bible are clearly visible. But so much buried treasure still waits to be brought to the surface. We also encourage each one who might be here this morning and there's never been a time when you realize your sinful condition before the Lord and therefore understood as well that Jesus died for sinners. He didn't die for the righteous. You know, some um, faith systems will indicate you got to work in this thing and uh, you uh, the more you produce for God then you will be granted eternal life. If your good works outweigh your bad works. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we have to come to terms with the reality that we're sinners by nature. And here's the beautiful thing about that. Jesus, he said himself, did not die for the righteous, but for sinners. And those sinners that realize that and then repent toward God and receive the Lord Jesus Christ into their heart as Savior and understand that you've got to let that go. you got to surrender yourself to the Lord and thank Him ultimately for dying on the cross for your sins. But if you do genuinely give your heart to the Lord and ask Him to save you, you know what? He'll do it. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've granted us today to uh, seek to understand a portion of Scripture. And thank you, Lord, for the illuminating power of your Spirit who helps us understand. And it gets beyond simply our human reasoning. But we also pray, dear God, that the message as it goes forth, and has gone forth, is that your spirit who has accompanied it will draw up the hearts of people at their area of need, especially those who still have not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. May this be the day and the hour, dear God, where they come to terms with the reality of their sin, but also understand that as a loving God, you have provided the sacrifice for sin in the shedding of blood of your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus I thank you, Lord, for my salvation, long in uh, in standing, and thank you, Lord, for those who are just about to realize that they too can be saved. And I pray, dear God, that if they are this morning, that we will give uh, rejoicing uh, to that fact and give you all the glory and honor. For in Jesus' name I pray, amen.